Hello, and welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Playbook by Outlier Academy, where we decode what iconic founders, renowned investors, best-selling authors, and outlier thinkers have mastered, and what they've learned along the way. In each episode, we dive deep to uncover the tools, strategies, habits, routines, and hacks that we can all apply in our own lives, all in about 20 minutes. I'm Dennis Scribner, and on the show today, I'm joined by Jivko Bajanov, who played professional tennis before co-founding ShipBob with Dhruv Saxena and Divi Gulati in 2014. Jivko is currently the Senior Vice President of Strategic Projects at ShipBob, and over the last eight years, he's led the development and launch of almost every major strategic initiative that ShipBob has shipped, from their transition from owning their own fulfillment centers to developing an asset-light partner network of fulfillment centers to the launch of affordable two-day shipping for all of ShipBob's customers. You can find a searchable transcript of this episode, as well as our episode guide with ways to dive deeper at outlieracademy.com slash 137. That's outlieracademy.com slash 137. Please enjoy my conversation with ShipBob co-founder and SVP of Strategic Initiatives, Jivko Bajanov. Jivko, I'm thrilled to have you on 20 Minute Playbook. Thank you so much for joining me. Daniel, thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. Glad to have you here. Let's jump right into the questions. Uh, one of the things I always like to start with is a recent fascination. What are you obsessed with, fascinated with at the moment? What can't you stop thinking about? Yeah, well, it's evolved over time, but I, I'm super fascinated with, with e-commerce and logistics. If It's hard to, to, to shy away from that. To me, e-commerce is uh, one of the, the greatest frontiers still where the uh, American dream is still alive and you can have folks from zero to no education or zero to no funds, figure it out, make it happen and bring uh, business commerce to not only their livelihood, but to also parts of the country that are maybe underserved. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something that I'm continuously fascinated about and obviously logistics uh, w- w- being with Shiba. But recently, one of the things that, that, that has been more fascinating is just um, is, is segments of the e-commerce space where uh, Fulfillment traditionally doesn't creep into or help out as much, and that and that's and that's folks that do fulfillment on their own, and they're in this in a stage where they're like too big to 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 hand it over to like a a, a more specialized professional service, and um, yeah, and, but and they're at a point where they need help. So um, yeah, it should Bob, we release some interesting products to help the, those folks out. But it's a it's a it's a really large segment that maybe gets overlooked at times that that uh, keeps me up at night these days. It's interesting. We're going to get into that a lot in uh, our long form conversation. I want to start with a question that's a little bit of a heavy question, but I, I wanted to ask it. You know, your parents immigrated to the U.S. Uh, with you and became U.S. citizens, and you're from Bulgaria originally. What kinds of risks did they take to do that? And I know a little. I'm asking that because I know a little bit of the backstory. And what impact has that experience, being the child of first generation immigrants, had on you? I mean, I I can't. Speak enough about my parents because, like, uh, I I got to like uh, my my parents essentially like uh, gave up on, on pretty much everything that they were doing before in their life to to come to a new country where they didn't completely understand the culture, the language, all those things, uh, but saw an opportunity for for my sister and I, you know, to for a better future. Uh, when we immigrated, Bulgaria was like. It was the mid '90s, like communism fell apart in '99. There were a lot of turbulence changes, and it was a, it was a great opportunity. Uh, and 
my parents were entrepreneurs in Bulgaria and they also had like stable jobs and like great education. And, and they literally like came here and like started, started from scratch. So watching them go through that and uh, the, the long hours they worked and the things I had to do to just, to just put food on the table to make things happen. Yeah. It, 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 it inst- like it was a, a life-changing <laughs> decade or I don't know how long uh, p- part of my life there that instilled a lot of great lessons, but also it instilled some things in me that I'm not sure how I'll which is just this inner drive to essentially to make the, the most of the opportunities I have to, uh, to, to strive for more because I've seen what people have sacrificed to give me that opportunity. So I am in- incredibly humbled and thankful and I can't uh, I can't speak about that enough for uh, for what my parents have done switching it up you know you've taken a number of unorthodox routes in your career uh, including dropping out of college to become a professional tennis player which you know is a whole interview we could do in and of itself on that experience in that period in your life I'd love it if you could share a little bit about it that experience what you learned from it and what uh, that taught you being a professional tennis player for you know a year what that taught you that you've applied to chip Bob and that you've applied to your life since then I started college I was and after my freshman year I dropped out to play tennis professionally. And at the time, uh, it, uh, like I played tennis, obviously, for a long time prior. It wasn't just like a random venture. <laughs> I wanted to essentially pursue my dreams. And I realized that being in school uh, was time that I'm not spending on the tennis court. And if, if, I, if I don't give it a shot, I will ne- never really know like uh, how, what I could have done with a tennis career. Uh, and after playing tennis professionally for a year, it helped me realize also the reality of what it would take to be successful and to, to be able to, to feed a family playing tennis uh, and, and, and more so like the, the chances of, of doing that, uh, which helped me ground myself back in, in, into the world of business. But there were some incredible lessons from it. For, for one, like that, that applied to business. For one is like at some point, once you realize what you want to do, you've got to burn the bridges of everything else and, and have this like deep level of focus. Uh, so dropping out of school, selling my car, moving down to Florida, like completely removed myself from my, my comfort zone and uh, put myself in an environment where I can focus just on the, the one thing that I cared about in that case. And it was tennis. So doing that in a business setting, I think has, has massive dividends. It, it, it had massive dividends for my tennis game, even though uh, it, I'm not playing tennis anymore. They still feel uh, m- like a much better tennis player after that year. But some, some of the nuances, like once you, you've burned all the bridges and you're doing this 100% of the time, one of the like, interesting takeaways was like I was playing tennis and you could like in Southern Florida during the summer, you can like spend maybe four hour stops in, in, in the sun outside. And the rest of the time you were doing activities like you're, you're stretching, you're eating, you're sleeping everything else. And all of that had to become a part of becoming a better tennis player. And you spent way more time off of the court doing things that doesn't always seem like they directly benefit your, you know, your, your top mission that were extremely beneficial. Like if you didn't get enough sleep, you couldn't play for those full four hours. You didn't maximize that time. So I think just, just that concept of realizing how much of the, of the, things that you do have an effect when they're not necessarily like in, in that, in that prime moment, like in the business world, you might have to be on a sales call or, or something where you have to deliver, but 
it's all the other time that you spent and and the research and all those things or whatever it may be that helped prepare you for, for that moment. And that's equally, if not more important than, than that, that hour moment uh, when you're actually, we have to perform. I want to ask one more question about tennis. Uh, you know, tennis is a sport with a lot of really uh, colorful characters in it. <laughs> are there any, well, I'm sure you have them. Who are your favorite players and why are they your favorite players? What do you take away from the way they play the game or the way they approach the sport? So I used to be, well, I, I still am a huge Roger Federer fan. Like, how can you, how can you not love the guy? But I've come around on, on Rafa, uh, Rafa on the doubt. And when, early in his career, like we're the same age. When we started out, we had the same like hairstyle and he obviously became a little more successful at tennis. Uh, uh, but it, like early on, I wasn't, I wasn't a big fan of Rafa. Like he, he seemed like too bold and brash and, and stuff, but over time, just seeing the amount of like effort and dedication and how much he, he's pre- persevered and the things he's done, like you just, you're just humbled by that work ethic and, and that focus. Uh, so I am a huge, huge Rafa fan now, uh, but that wasn't the case in the start of his career. My mom's a huge Rafa fan, so she will uh, yeah. appreciate that. Um, I'd love to switch gears and talk about areas where you think you have an edge or a superpower. And that may sound a little bit lofty when I use a, you know, a label like superpower. But from my perspective, you know, the reason I frame it that way is I think we all come with things that are just innate to us uh, that we, you know, kind of over-index on. And it, it can be due to the way that we're wired. It can be due to what we're attracted to in life. It can be due to parts of our personality. When you think about your edge or superpower, what do you think those are? And then how do those show up in your day-to-day work? Yeah, uh, for me, it would probably have to be re- resilience. And I think there's two facets to like resilience. One is the ability uh, just not to give up and, and, and to keep going under a great degree of pressure uh, and, and whatever you know, may come up with. If, not, if, if numbers are not favorable to, to, to what you're, you're doing, you know, to keep going. And the second part to it is the part of resilience where you could bend and give, but not, you know, not, not break. So I think like the, the way this falls into my like business philosophy is like, I'm pretty clear into like the goal that we, we need to get to. And I can give on how we get there, how much time or how we fund it or how we figure it out. And that, that comes into play like in, in, in all like daily projects, stand-ups, whatever we have with our team and, and, and the way we move through a lot, a lot of the goals. So, yeah. I think resilience is a great answer. And I don't think anyone has given that on the show. So I love that you that, that is your superpower. If, if This is a little bit of a, a curveball. I haven't asked this one before. I'm going to try this question out on you. So thanks for being my guinea pig. Um, if people listening could shadow you for a day and they can just see what your daily routines and habits and just your daily work and life is like, what do you think they would be most surprised by? And you know, what I'm thinking of there is habits and routines, anything unique about the way you approach your work or approach your life. What do you think people might be surprised by? Yeah, it's evolved recently for me because I recently became a dad. So like my my daily routines it's greatly very different. changed. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things is uh, like uh, I like my team always tell you like uh, that I'm always available any any time of day, uh, and they, they probably feel this way. But I go to bed super early, and I think that's something that folks would be su- surprised by. And I get up now super early and I spend probably about like two and a half, three hours playing w- w- with our daughter. 
and uh, and making her some breakfast and uh, that that creates like a, a my routine for the day that that kicks off my day. But yeah, and and historically, like I I feel like folks in the creative space usually like tend to stay up later and, and do a lot of creative work late at night. Uh, but that's completely like flipped for me recently, and I, I can't advocate for it more. Now you're an early to bed, early wake up kind of guy. <laughs> What, uh, you know, related to that, what sorts of values and standards do you bring to your work every single day? And part of this goes back, I mean, resilience is maybe one of those. But what I'm thinking of here is, you know, you talked about being always available. What other values or standards do you set for yourself just in terms of how you show up, how you show up with your teammates, how you show up at the company? They're kind of profound, like in in our company values. Uh, I think they were set as a reactive based on like what myself and the other founders and early on, like what we were doing. but. Uh, it, just just being humble, I think, and a, a lot of uh, a lot of people say that word, but I, I think it's different to like live it uh, and to to be humble in the approach to, to dealing with folks, with, with merchants, with, with whoever you might interact with. Um, the other one is just being a creative problem solver, and and that's and that's in a lot of different facets. Like uh, for uh, the, the uh, our, our department, uh, we're sending up new business units all, all the time. So what we have to do is connect the dots between different ideas and departments and resilience, which, which you mentioned and you took, took, out of my, <laughs> took out of my breath there. But yeah, those are the three things that uh, I, I probably come to work with every day and, uh, and, and shine through. I would always love to ask guests about their favorite books. Uh, you know, when you think about books, favorite books, you know, are there any that have ha- either had an outsized impact on you or that you find yourself giving away to others, recommending to others? Any favorite books to share with the audience? Yeah. So this is not a, like a normal business book or like I have a, a theory that, that I think like a lot of folks in the business space need to read a little bit more fiction. So that that book for me is, is The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, and for one, like I think as a business leader, like a lot of what you do is storytelling and having examples of, of great fiction of great sto- storytelling helps with that and also being able to to i think take your mind off of the everyday things and connect dots but and then so, something about the, the book it, it's like there's a lot of different business analogies in there but just the ability to to deal with um what happens like when your reality completely shifts and how you react to it and in, in, in the count of Monte cristo ends up being like a vengeful path in the second half of the story. That's maybe not the, the right, the best takeaway, but just how do you, what do you do? Like when you when your whole life, you know, flips upside down and, 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 and um, yeah. So th- th- that's a book that I've given away with uh, a couple of times to folks. And I, I uh, love to reread. Yeah, that's a great one where I've definitely seen the movie. I imagine a lot of people might have seen the movie, but I don't think enough people have probably read the book. I know I haven't. Um, and I imagine there's probably a great audiobook version of that. So I need to go and look. One of the questions I was burning to ask you is, um, and you touched on it a little bit, but your role at ChipBob is really unique. You know, you're in charge of strategic projects. You've basically spent a number of years now standing up new business lines, new features, new products uh, within the company. And so one of the questions I want to ask is, what you think you've learned by taking a number of things now from zero to one? Because obviously, by if you're focusing on strategic projects, you're starting off with some sort of business challenge or some sort of goals, typically metrics that you need to be moving towards. But you have to fill in all of the blanks and then take that from an idea into something that's working that at some point you likely hand off to somebody else or to a new team. Any thoughts on solving zero to one or navigating the chasm? 
so I think that from on the zero to one, I think like um, for one is like you need to find something that you you love doing, even in like and you need to keep refining that and, and whatever problem you're solving. And if you don't really love it, like even when you when you, when somebody else tells you to, you know, just throws you into it. For example, like I I, I get to be in a lucky position where I get to chart that path. But in some cases, like folks in a similar role might be, you know, their 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 C level executives might might tell them go do this. Like you you need to you need to fall in love with it. And if you don't, you need to you need to question it until you do. And then you need to get started. And to get started, I think you need to have somewhere around like thirty percent of the information to get moving forward. And that's that's a number where I think you you recognize that you mostly don't know everything, but you have enough information to get a directional start. And from there. It's just a matter of getting feedback from from the people that you think are your customers, and I say that the people that you think are your customers because that might change by the end of the, the time when you start to talk to those folks, and then like uh, taking that that feedback to, to fill in the, the rest of your the rest of your probably not all seventy percent, but maybe at least like sixty percent of that, and then one of just the things about like doing this uh, you know over and over is one of the, the, the most difficult things. Is like well, for one, if you follow this of like falling in love with the problem, you get to a point where you have to create this organization where you're useless and you hand it off to somebody else, and that's a really difficult thing. If you actually like, like loved it, and uh, I, I'm, you know, like thinking about like my child currently right now, and when she grows to be, you know, goes off to college or something of that sort, but it, it, you have to, you have to, you have to find a way to. Uh, to to be in a, in a position where where you're comfortable to do that and it's really difficult like like till this day when some of the like the most recent business unit that that became you know and it got absorbed by by Shibab and full it was really difficult to let it go and and that's probably a good thing if you feel that way that means you've done something right uh, but you still need to need to be prepared for it because it's it's a difficult stepping stone. Yeah, I love that framework. One of the questions I want to ask, you know, kind of related to that is solving the zero to one problem, you know, it makes me think of what you brought up earlier, which is resilience, because in my, you know, so I have a background in design. I feel like as a designer, as a company builder, you grapple with a lot of zero to one problems. And one of the things you realize is there are just really hard moments in creating anything. You come through periods where you're not, you're either stuck in a negative feedback loop. You don't feel like you're making progress. You have to just keep moving forward. What's your approach in those moments or what have you learned from being in those moments so often? Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, but but I think what gets you out of it is uh, is just doing more. So like if you have a negative feedback loop from, let's say, like your internal team or let's just simply your numbers or whatever it may be, it's it's talking to more customers. And, and then and in this case, it's maybe like you, you're not talking to the right customer. So you, you might need to start looking at what are tangential or, or like folks that they were referred or, uh, but yeah, t- t- talking to, to more people that, that face this problem essentially on a, on a daily basis. And you might not get enough traction still, or, you know, what you need to, to move forward, but sometimes like their stories or the, you know, knowing that the, the things that you will solve for them when you get this right is what will, will keep you going. Yeah. And it's, and it's not easy. And at some point things just don't work and you have to, you know, you need to, to to move on, but it's it's a really tough and fine line to 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 be able to make that call. But generally, like when I'm facing those situations, and then you're close to like giving up, 
I, I think that you need to do that like twice at least. And on the third time, you could be like, okay, maybe maybe it's time. Maybe I've exhausted everything that I've tried. Yeah, I like the three strikes yeah. <laughs> rule. It's also very hard to get to get to three, I imagine, for a lot of people. I want to ask a closing question uh, to wrap up this interview. Um, and it's the same one I ask every guest, which is if you could go back to the start of your career and whisper some advice, a reminder, words of wisdom into your ear, is there any advice that you would give your younger self? That's a great question. Uh, and I think the key word there is the start of your career. Um, but uh, I think and I, I think I feel lucky to have kind of fallen into this advice, but it would be to uh, to maximize learning and not your title or, or, or your pay uh, because those like the dividends that you would make over your lifetime from the, the greater knowledge experience that you have early on in your career are exponentially higher than getting an extra 5k you know, on, on your signing from a company out of school or an extra, I don't know, whatever, a couple like two weeks off or whatever that, that, that benefit package might be from, from a company. So I think that's a great uh, lesson for, you know, to share with everyone listening to the episode. Um, Cause I found the same thing, you know, it like money. Yes, you can invest it. You can compound it. A title doesn't get you anything else really. Maybe other positions in a similar title, but yeah, I think those, the, when I think back to the early part of my career, the thing I'm most grateful for was one, not to be in COVID where everyone was working remotely and to be around people because I, so much learning happens by just talking and sitting and observing other people working. And I feel like a lot of people miss out of that, out on that today. Do you feel similarly? Any thoughts on how to learn uh, in this kind of remote or hybrid world? Some things that we've done internally, like as a company that like if you're, if you're employed or your company's not doing that, you, you could just kick off is we have these, uh, like virtual coffee sessions, we use an app for it, like like randomly like matches folks. But if you don't have something like that, be the person that sends an email or Slack with whatever you're curious about and, and just put like time on people's calendars. I think generally folks would, 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 would come to it. And yeah, and early on, like um, it's it's okay to be ambitious or brash and, and, and plead like and ask for forgiveness. Like if you, if you put 30 minutes on the CEO's calendar and he doesn't want to give you the time or doesn't like it, like, that's okay. Like you tried, but you could, you could have picked their brain for, you know, for, for something really cool. So, um, yeah. Uh, and then also like just try to connect with people like in unique ways. I think a lot of people are coming, you know, getting into the office or some sort of hybrid, uh, but, um, sending people gifts, uh, and, and getting to, to talk about those gifts or things or a way that, that, that I found like connecting with, with folks during COVID was, was, was great. I sent some books out, uh, it's actually great that you asked that question, <laughs> but yeah, just some ideas. Yeah. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Divco. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, and I appreciate your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more about ShipBob, including their global omni-fulfillment solution that's trusted by over 7,000 brands to ship orders everywhere their customers shop at ShipBob.com. You can find a searchable transcript of this episode as well as our episode guide with ways to dive deeper at OutlierAcademy.com slash 137. That's OutlierAcademy.com slash 137. For more from Jivko Bajanov, listen to episode 138, where we decode how ShipBob has grown from shipping orders from the co-founders of to running a network of 30 plus fulfillment centers located around the world that 7,000 plus brands use to ship orders everywhere their customers shop, including brands like 100 Thieves, Spikeball, Tom Brady's TB2, and many, many more. 
You can find that episode at outlieracademy.com slash 138. That's outlieracademy.com slash 138. For more from Outlier Academy, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash outlieracademy, or visit Outlier Academy for more incredible 20-minute playbook episodes. We'll see you right here with a brand new episode next Tuesday.